Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we're speaking to Zeb Sones, a name familiar to countless BBC Radio 4 listeners as an announcer, newsreader and perhaps above all one of the voices of the daily shipping forecast. Born and brought up in East Anglia in the heart of Benjamin Britten country, Sones has been a classical music enthusiast since his childhood. Today, he regularly appears on stage in the concert hall, either as a presenter or often as a narrator of much-loved works, such as Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. He also includes a number of spoken roles on his CV, and next year will be working on a new project with composer Jonathan Dove and illustrator James Mayhew, based on his own Gaspar the Fox series of books for children. Zeb talked to BBC Music Magazine's deputy editor Jeremy Pound over Zoom during lockdown and told him how it was classical music that once helped him through a period when illness put his very livelihood under serious threat. So I'm here with Zeb Sones. I say I'm here. I'm actually in Cheltenham and Zeb is in... Where are you, Zeb? I'm in Islington in North London. Excellent. And how has lockdown treated you so far? Well, professionally, in terms of broadcasting, it's continued, um, I won't say as usual, but I've certainly been going into the BBC um, whenever I have been required. I only live 20 minutes away and and it's very easy for me to cycle. Um, So obviously the building has been a lot emptier than usual because a lot of office staff have been working from home, but, but many presenters and technicians and producers have been going in to keep um, certainly live programmes on air. Um, So it's been a bit strange not interacting physically with with people as much as as you normally do. So kind of scripts are either passed you at arm's length or left on a mutually convenient table and all that sort of thing, which is a little bit strange. Um, You know, the other aspects of my... um, work such as concerts obviously that's all been cancelled and and book events um have all been cancelled but i've been trying to kind of make up for some of those by uh doing zoom uh visits to schools and uh and and also producing a series of little youtube films um which festivals can use lots of festivals have put lots of content online so so actually i've probably been busier than usual because all of those things making films takes a lot more time than just pitching up to you know to on a particular day to a particular event of course that's freed up a lot of time have you found yourself investigating music quite a lot during the last three months with the the extra time you've had to hand yeah well yes listening to a lot i i I listen to um petrock on radio three um when i'm not on air myself and uh and it's a wonderful program it's a great start to the day and and gives a break from from the serious business of the news, uh, and uh, and yes, and, and listening to actually trying to kind of listen around things that I would normally listen to. So um, uh, I'm listening to some Purcell at the moment. Um, I don't know a great deal about Purcell, and and um, yeah, it's uh, I like to have a soundtrack to my my day because, mm. of course, you have been seriously into classical music from a fairly young age. Can you tell me all about the first piece of classical music that really inspired you? 
<laughs> well, the first the first piece of classical music I have a memory of is the Nutcracker, uh, and that's because when I was aged five, I played a teddy bear in a <laughs> primary school production of the Nutcracker, and I remember it. Vi- well, I remember the music vividly because it was it was so lush. Um, and and there was lots that we choreographed. I, I was one of the toys, so there was lots of um, uh, kind of running around and, and fighting and, you know, play, play sword fighting and what have you. But I had this costume, which was a synthetic faux fur teddy bear costume with a zip that kept getting stuck. And it was terribly, terribly hot. So I have, you know, coupled with the beauty of Tchaikovsky's music, I have this rather uncomfortable memory of being absolutely baking hot. So that's that's certainly my first memory of a piece of classical music. And what was the first classical music disc you bought? Well, when I when I got my first job and had my my first money, I uh, I went out and bought uh, Mozart's Requiem and. Uh, I, I presume because of Amadeus, and uh, it, the recording I have is 1991 Vienna Philharmonic. Um, it was the 200th anniversary of Mozart's death, and what's special about this recording is that it was it was a real mass um, performed in Vienna, officiated um, over by the the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. So you really get the genuine mass experience rather than just hearing the the, the music itself. Um, and Schulte really takes it at quite a lick. So it's incredibly exhilarating. When I've been to performances of it since, sometimes I get quite frustrated that it's not as fast as the version that that I first started listening to. But I had it on a cassette, and I remember almost wearing it out that summer. I was doing an open-air Shakespeare tour, and I remember whenever I had some quiet time, I would just take myself off and, and listen to it in its entirety. And of course, it's what I, I've been listening to the to this recording myself, and it's it's not just the speed he takes it at; it's actually a really quite in-your-face performance as well, isn't it? There's one yes. moment where the tenors and the altos really they don't hold back. It's almost kind no. of rough and ready at times. No, there's and there's a real attack to it. So you know, it's it's not this kind of lumbering, uh, lacrimose. Um, a funeral uh, dirge. It's 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 very exciting and 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 uh, yeah. So as I say, I find it quite difficult to hear some performances sometimes. And I recommend this recording if nobody's heard it. Don't just take our word from it. We're going to have a listen to it now. Here is the Domine Jesu from that very recording. Your performance in the Nutcracker was your your very first concert performance all those years ago, but you've done many since. What would you say is the most memorable? I had a, a one of those kind of out of the blue telephone calls saying, um, "I've got something I would like to propose to you," and so of course you know you it's couched in mystery and, and and extremely fascinating, and it was Martin Duncan, who's a director of opera and theatre, and Martin said how would you fancy playing the voice of God in Britain's Noah's Flood? Well, I mean, it was, an, it was an instant yes. I didn't even know where it was being performed or, you know, it was just an instant yes. 
And it was to be performed in my hometown of Lowestoft in Suffolk, which is also Britain's hometown, but also performed in the church in which it was first performed there back in 1956, which was three years after the Great Flood, um, which inundated the east coast of England and uh, Britain's own house, Crag House, down in, um, down in Oldborough. So there were all kinds of resonances for me. Uh, and my great, great uncle had restored the roof timbers in the church that we were performing it in. So that is certainly the most memorable and special concert experience that I've ever had. And, you know, it sounds very grand playing the voice of God, but I mean, he's, he's a minor role, an important role, but it meant that I spent much of the performance crouched in the pulpit. And then whenever God had to speak after the gong, I would rise out of the pulpit, deliver my line, and then kind of squirrel myself back down there again. So I got to, to hear this fabulous work. We had Andrew Shaw and Dame Felicity Palmer as Noah and Mrs. Noah. And the moment for me that I'll never forget is when the congregation sings Eternal Father, because it suddenly felt as if the church was the ark and we were all in the ark together. And it's even talking about it, it makes the hairs go up on the back of my neck. So that's that's certainly the most memorable and that will take some beating, I think, probably. Of course, there's lots of recordings of of noise flood um, dating right back to the composer's own, which are fascinating to hear to hear how he did it. Um, was there any particular recording you listened to either before or after, or did you just want to do your own thing and then so you didn't didn't worry about listening to? Recordings? No, I did. I, li- I listened. I've got it here. I listened to the first recording of it, um, and of course it. Uh, uh, it's Owen Brannigan, Sheila Rex, Trevor Anthony, the English opera group um, conducted by Norman Dormar. Uh, and yeah, it's got a wonderful period sound to it, but 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 terribly atmospheric. And of course, in the first performance in Lowestoft in 1956, there was a very young Michael Crawford in the company. And I believe he was only about 16 at the time and unknown, of course. Um, so, you know, that's, that was, I, I got hold of the original programme from a friend of my parents who lives in the town. And there was Michael Crawford's name. And, and we actually managed to get an interview with him. I wrote some programme notes for it. And he's got very vivid memories of how kind Britain was to him and uh, and how important the production was and, and what a special experience it was. must have been extraordinary to have performed it in that particular place with the, with a sense of history i guess mm. yeah it was it, and also it gave me a real sense of how much that flood in 1953 must have inspired him uh, i spoke to people who knew him and and said that his his record collection um had all all the records had got covered in water seawater and uh, and the labels had all detached themselves and then kind of reattached themselves onto, onto other LPs uh, and his sheet music, of course. So uh, so I think that must have 
influenced his writing of it. And I seem to remember he wrote it incredibly quickly as well. Mm. But it, it's an extraordinary piece. It's a great piece to introduce children to the experience of performing. And all of the children that we had in the company were from local schools, many of which didn't really practice um group singing in the way that I did when I was a child, where if ever it was too wet to do PE, we would go into the assembly hall and we would all sing hymns and songs from shows. And that didn't seem to be happening as much anymore. So lots of these children didn't have that much experience of singing. And as a result of this um, Britain Centenary production, those children continued to meet for fun um, to sing afterwards, which I think Britain would have been thrilled about. This may sound a slightly twee question, but um, did your role of, of reading the shipping forecast have a sort of bearing on your choice there? Does that make that particular work extra <laughs> well, special it, to well, you? Well, it did. And I think it was the designer's suggestion. He said, he said, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we started the production with Noah sitting listening to the shipping forecast? Um, and, uh, and then that, that's when they thought of me for the voice of God. So we actually started the production with me um, backstage reading that day's shipping forecast um, as the audience came in. Excellent. Wonderful. Wonderful. Noise Flood is just one of many concerts you've done where you've done the, the speaking role, or and sometimes it's been with a speaking role which is part of the score, sometimes it's been with a speaking role which is added to an existing score. Can you just tell me about one or two of the other concerts you've done a speaking role in? Uh, one of the most recent uh, was Betchman's Banana Blush, uh, which I don't know if you know, but it was a fabulous cult recording in the 1960s where John Betchman's music, his, John Betchman's poetry was set to music by Jim Parker, who's a BAFTA-winning film and TV composer, wrote the music for Foyle's War, House of Elliot, um, Midsummer Murders, oh, House of Cards, of course, the original production. And he persuaded, well, initially, Betchman was very reluctant and thought that poetry was its own music. But once Jim showed him how it would work, Betchman really took to it. So I did a performance of that. The first performance in about 30 years of the whole piece at St. Martin in the Fields a few years ago. And I contacted Jim Parker and said that I'd quite like to do it. And he said, well, there's only one problem. A lot of it is missing over the years as I've moved houses. I've, I've lost lots of the music. So Jim very kindly re-scored all those missing pieces. But it's a massive orchestra. It requires about 25 musicians. So um, there were other requests to do it. So um, I got an arranger friend to, to make a version for four musicians several of whom play several instruments to give the, the texture. And we performed that at the Thaxted Festival last October. So that's that's been the most recent words and music performance. And, and it's it's joyous. Um, Jim is so clever in, in how he gives a kind of a nostalgic sense to the music. And, and uh, it's and covering all sorts of different styles from a kind of sense of brass band, bandstand music to um, hornpipes. I mean, it's a very good companion piece to Facade, actually, which is another piece I've performed and recorded. Um, we did a recording with, the John, with John Wilson uh, about five years ago, and Carol Boyd, who plays Linda Snell in The Archers, was the other reciter and gave a very Sitwellian quality to, to the performance, I have to say, as you can imagine. Um, and, there, and there are lots of regular Christmas concerts, such as Baba the Elephant and, and the Snowman. There's a version of the Snowman when you don't have the film, which is narrated, um, Little Red Riding Hood, 
uh, and Peter and the Wolf, of course. So it's... Uh, I, I used to refer to them before he died as as Richard Baker's old gigs because of course Richard Baker was very well known for narrating with orchestra and and with a master at it and so it's been a it's been a joy to kind of get to perform those that that I remember him performing in recent years. If you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description. Can you take me back a little bit about uh, kind of music over your life from your earliest start? I mean, has music always been there kind of running throughout your life or was there a time when you perhaps weren't so interested? Uh, It all started with a church-going family. My father's a Methodist minister, so certainly hymns would have been, and and church music, organ music, choral singing would have been the earliest music that I heard and and certainly the first music that I um, performed as, as, you know, as a congregational singer. And those great hymns such as Great is Thy Faithfulness and Tell Out My Soul still resonate very powerfully with me and, and... as a child, I used to tour around little country chapels, many of which don't exist anymore, um, with Dad, and Mum would play the harmonium, and and I would read the lesson, uh, and yeah, that was that that would certainly be the earliest memory. And then I started to play music. So my mother was a church organist. Both my sister played instruments. I had piano lessons, and my mother has a tremendous ear. So a lot of her accompanying a lot of her playing in church is completely by ear and and I inherited that and it used to be a great game between me and my school music teacher he would come in and just strike a note on the piano and say Soames and then I would I would name the note which of course you know made me very popular with the class bullies as you can imagine (laughs) um and uh, yes, and so then I continued playing the piano and um, I remember coming home from school and sometimes would just sit for three hours just doodling away and, and trying to play things that I'd heard that I didn't necessarily have the music for. And do you still have that that command of pitch? If I played you a note on the piano today, would you be able to tell me which one it was? Uh, well, uh, yeah, well, I'm very careful who I say that to because obviously, yes, people want to test it and it has not <laughs> been tested for a number of years. But... but um, I've got a great memory for music, which, um, uh, you know, if some, I think if I went on Mastermind, it would probably be um, theme tunes, because I could remember theme tunes from programmes going right back to my childhood. Um, you know, every every little detail of them. So I think, you know, I think that's just in my DNA somewhere. Mm. Someone very useful to have on a, on a pub quiz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So over the course of your life, has there been one particular piece that you found that you really couldn't live without, which has been so important to you in one way or the other? This is a very hard question, and and I've been thinking about this since you first asked me to do this interview, and, and it kind of changes day by day. And I think, oh, well, at that period of my life, there was a period where I... I loved when I first heard Vaughan Williams' Fantasia on theme by Thomas Tallis. I thought it was the most hauntingly beautiful piece that I'd ever heard, and and I listened to it endlessly. And I think probably I've I've listened to it too much, and I've seen too many performances. But certainly in recent years, uh, a piece which I 
carry with me is Handel's Dixit Dominus. And about eight years ago, I suddenly lost my voice. And it happened while I was on air, inexplicably, and and I assumed it was laryngitis or something that would clear itself up. And it turned out to be a paralysed vocal cord. Uh, you know, the chances of it happening to somebody who uses their voice for their living was quite remote, I was told. But also there was no guarantee of recovery. And during this very bleak six months, as it turned out to be, when I couldn't work, uh, a very kind friend introduced me to Dixit Dominus. And I took myself away for a rest cure. And I would just sit listening to this music, um, sitting outside, uh, walking along the beach. And now whenever I hear it, it just reminds me of that tremendous kindness and friendship that I was shown by many people during that time and from complete strangers. It's a beautiful piece of music and uh, and it doesn't now remind me of a difficult period in my life. It, it makes me thankful for having got through it. <laughs> And again, um, I'm probably trying to read too much into these things, but just as I was saying with the the shipping forecast and noise flood, of course, the title Dixit Dominus means the Lord spoke. Does that have a special resonance for you? Is that or am I putting two, to, two together and making well, five? I had never made that connection and probably should have done. It makes the piece kind of resonate even more for me. The great thing about having something awful like that happen, which you recover from, is is you, it really makes you learn not to sweat the small stuff. So, you know, I find, you know, I find having faced the possibility of never being able to do the thing I love doing professionally again, um, you kind of come to peace with that. And, and, and when suddenly I was able to perform again and broadcast again, you don't take it for granted, and uh, but also all the little stresses and things that used to kind of get you down or get you very exercised, none of it matters, you know, and that's a very liberating thing, which despite how awful that period was, I'm so grateful for that because it's it's changed my outlook on my life. Is there, what would you have done had you your voice not returned? Did you have any idea? Did you ever kind of think about your Gardening. Sort of, Gardening, excellent. <laughs> I think, I think gardening, Jeremy. I, I, I love. I'm very happy in a garden and pottering around plants. And uh, or, 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 or I would have become a potter. I don't know. It would have definitely been something creative, um, that obviously just didn't involve speaking or having to speak particularly loudly. So yeah, it, it would have definitely been creative. One reason why I ask is because um, you have recently become an author, of course, with the Gaspar the Fox series with James Mayhew, the illustrator. Um, and can you tell me about these books? They're wonderful. Um, you've chosen a, a character based on a sort of real life experience and developed it from there. So can you tell me a little bit more about Gaspar the Fox? Well, the, the, the stories are uh, set in this part of North London where I live and obviously were inspired by a real encounter that I had with uh, a real fox. And what was extraordinary about this fox was 
how beautiful it is. I mean, really, I mean, it's, it's still the most beautiful fox that I've ever seen. And that's why people re responded so strongly whenever I put photographs online. But also the fox was so incredibly trusting and foxes have amazing hearing. And this fox seemed to get to know the sound of my bicycle. So whenever I was coming home from work and folding up, I've got one of those folding bicycles, often I would turn and the fox just sitting there by my heels, um, almost as if it had just kind of manifested rather than arrived, because they're incredibly quiet um, animals. Uh, and friends had said to me, you know, this has got all the makings of a children's story. And I kind of just dismissed that for a long time. And then one day on a very long train journey, I just started writing the first Guest by the Fox story. And I thought I'm going to write a very kind and gentle story. Foxes get a very bad press. And and so I wanted to kind of redress that somewhat. And that's that's how the first book came about. And now it's it's a series and book three comes out next February. And I understand that Jonathan Dove has become involved in a, a musical representation of Gaspar. Yes. Can you tell me a bit more well, about that? Well, James and I, when I first met, James Mayhew is the illustrator of the stories. And when we first had lunch and talked about the look of 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 the books, um, we realised that we both had this connection with orchestras. I narrate with orchestras, and James narrates and paints live with orchestras. Uh, and I know you've seen lots of his concerts. Uh, and we said, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if one day Gaspar would be set to music? And and that was that. And then suddenly. Uh, next February uh, will be the performance of Gaspar the Fox set to music by Jonathan Dove. And the piece is called Gaspar's Foxtrot. And we follow Gaspar through London on a double decker bus to a performance of classical music in Hyde Park, uh, where Gaspar ends up on stage and, and gives his name to the final piece of music. And Jonathan's music is is extraordinary. James and I, when we when we heard it, were were moved to tears. It's it's he manages to capture the, the vulnerability of the animal, um, the movement of the animal, but also lots of lots of other urban wildlife is included. So we have a tarantella for tube mice, um, the pigeon pizzicata, um, and uh, and Gaspar's foxtrot, the title piece. Excellent. Um, so that will be that will be that will be performed at the Royal Festival Hall at the um, Queen Elizabeth Hall on Saturday the 20th of February there are two performances and that will be the world premiere and hopefully by then we can we can actually get back to concert halls to hear it we all. hope yes we hope mm. I mean is this the first the, the fox you saw in, in North London was that the kind of your first encounter with a fox or was it have you kind of long oh, yes. had a fascination with them and well I'd I'd, I'd I'd always loved foxes remotely and, 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 and thought that they were beautiful animals. But And, of course, in London, I mean, there are um, thousands of foxes in the city, you know, possibly, you know, 16 to 20,000 foxes in the city. And it's... Uh, so you see them everywhere. But this was the first time I'd come up close to a fox and, you know, sometimes would sit for 20 minutes, um, kind of, you know, leg to leg um, with Gaspar on my front doorstep watching the world go by. And they're incredibly, well, they're incredibly gentle animals, despite the press. They get very family-oriented. Um, often other vixens that have not had a litter will help to bring up the other children um, of, of another vixen in the family. And, and to watch that whole life cycle, I mean, I've seen, I saw three 
litters of Gaspars. Gaspar turned out, even though Gaspar is a boy in the books, Gaspar turned out to be a vixen. Uh, and yeah, it's joyous to have that connection with something so wild in the middle of the city. And I think lots of Londoners feel that, that it's, you know, we we share the city with with birds and, and all sorts of other wildlife. It's uh, it's it's very magical. Well, I look forward to seeing to seeing Gaspar in concert next year. In the meantime, has there been any other piece of music which has been really sort of grabbed your attention in the last say the last six months, your current listening obsession? Yes, there is. And this is very recent. Just last Thursday, I was visiting a friend and he was listening to Music for a While, which is improvisations on Purcell uh, by Christina Pluar. And what's amazing about this is it, it's it's kind of Purcell meets jazz. And uh, it's it's it was it. it absolutely held my attention and so I, I went away and bought it and I've been listening to it since. There's one track which is my absolute favourite and that is Strike the Vile and suddenly out of nowhere comes a pair of bongos and uh, I never thought that um, Purcell could be improved by bongos but it really can and uh, uh, so it's it's fun. It's it's got the most uh, beautiful cantatella, um, Philippe um, Jaroski, uh, who who's got this incredibly pure cantatella voice. Uh, so yes, that is my my top listening tip for the moment. You have described it to perfection. So let's hear a little bit of it now. That was L'Arpeggiata and Christina Pluha, its director, um, performing from the album Music for a While, music by Purcell, which has been arranged in wonderful, wonderful modern modern ways and kind of jazz-infused ways. Um, and that was the final choice of my guest, Zeb Sones. Um, so thank you very much for your time, Zeb. It's been fascinating to hear about your... No, thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for the invitation. It's, you know... Talking about music makes a change to talking about foxes, even though we've talked about foxes, but it's no, it's been a real pleasure. That was presenter Zeb Sones on the music that has shaped his life. Gaspar's Foxtrot, a new orchestral tale for children composed by Jonathan Dove, written by Zeb Sones and illustrated by James Mayhew, is scheduled to have its world premiere at the Southbank Centre in February 2021. Go to www.zebsones.com for more. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week and we'll be speaking to another fascinating musician about their enduring musical loves. Do let us know what you think of this podcast by rating it and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. And do subscribe. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Our thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast and to producers Ben Newett and Jack Bateman. Music